Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are talking about the dark history and hauntings of Newtonia, Missouri tonight. And there in Newtonia, there is everything from civil war battles and ghosts, outlaw bell star, blood-soaked floors, and more. We will be right back to all the spooky details of Newtonia in just a minute. We want to let you know where you can find us in person in the next few weeks. And you can purchase tickets for all of our events at ParanormalScienceLab.com. And as a spoiler, this Saturday, we will be in Newtonia, Missouri for a tour of the Ritchie Mansion and the Civil War Cemetery and a paranormal investigation of the Ritchie Mansion. Proceeds will benefit preservation of this historic mansion. And on November 19th, we have two events. First, in the afternoon, we will be at Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, signing books and talking about everything in the Dark Ozarks. And this is a free event. And then the night of November 19th, we will be doing a tour and paranormal investigation of the Web City Public Library. And you can find all the details for events at paranormalsciencelab.com. What uh, is perhaps the most surprising thing that happened at the Ritchie Mansion? Well, there's a lot to play with, but how about a 16-year-old girl jumping out of a second-story window onto the back of a horse to escape her captors? That's hard to top and something most people would have a hard time imagining, much less doing themselves. Now let's start there. Uh, as soon as we give a shout out to our great sponsors that help bring the Dark Ozarks to everyone. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online at Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history and more, not to mention that it's haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. And we also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri, twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historic building with a noir past, and it's also haunted. <laughs> Newtonia, Missouri has an important Civil War past, ghosts and outlaws, but how do you end up with a 16-year-old girl jumping out of a window onto a horse to escape? <laughs> I think that's a great question and excited to dig into all of this. Now, I also realized something as we were, were talking. We finally have a story of a girl leaping from a height in the Ozarks. And it is not a folk legend. Or tragic, you know, or, or some or some tragic death, you know. I, I, I love that. And not not uh, as either escaping uh, someone attacking her and certainly not there was an escape involved, but certainly not a um, pining away for her lost lover and she just can't take it another day. No, 
this is this is a girl with a plan with a plan taking the reins of her own destiny and in the process it becomes an origin story for one of the one of the more infamous and colorful uh, people of the old west that you probably don't know as well as you should agreed now this is a an individual that uh, of which I was unaware until I started doing Ozark's specific history. And uh -huh. that is unfortunate because in terms of writing the mythos of the Old West, the person in question, outlaw, bandit, queen, bell star, is up there with Calamity Jane and Annie Oakley. And in terms of, of exploits, you could argue uh, surpasses many of the heroes of the heroes and, and outlaws of the Old West. I, I, I agree. I mean, and certainly, um, I mean, we, we look at Calamity Jane and we look at Annie Oakley in, in our, you know, in awe of their shooting skill, et cetera. Well, Bell Starr uh, had those skills plus the horsemanship and it, was, it wasn't uh, an act. It, was, it wasn't a demonstration, you know, for, for a crowd. This was the real deal. And her exploits at Newtonia were almost the very beginning of it. Just about. And you, you could say that she was largely present, certainly in the Trans-Mississippi Theater, mm -hmm. for the entire war and, and engaged. Yes. Well, and uh, almost from day one. Um, and Bell Starr, who she was born, Myra Bell Shirley. And she was born and raised in the Carthage area. Her father was a prominent business owner, land owner, and known to be the best horseman in Southwest Missouri, which also gives a little credibility to some of her exploits that she, she was her father's daughter and probably learned a trick or, or two from him. Um, but, and another thing is, because she is known as the bandit queen and in some of the photos that we have of her she is in more of her bandit gear and so she looks a little rougher around the edges and so forth and that's a misnomer too because myra bell was a debutante <laughs> she was <clears throat> and and really in every sense of the word when you look at her upbringing her education her comparative wealth in yes. her younger years and very much that uh that southern bell very much so um i mean she was uh enrolled in women's academy she spoke uh, several languages four or five languages played a number of musical instruments uh she would have been at home at you know at debutante balls in any city in the country uh but instead, at 14, she ended up on the sidewalks of Carthage, Missouri, tending to injured soldiers during the Battle of Carthage. And that moment really kind of changed her future, I think. That, that does seem to be the seminal moment for her development, I mean, for what we can tell. Yes. And her, her family was Southern leaning. Um, her father was a slaveholder. Uh, and had sympathies for the Confederacy. So 
but the war really came to Southwest Missouri with the Battle of Carthage. It was the first large scale battle of the war, even before Bull Run. And it was literally at her front doorstep. Very literally, in, yeah. in the sense that the conflict, and it, for people to imagine this, the armies were in direct conflict with each other throughout the town square. Yes, and literally, you know, her family lived in their hotel on the square, and you, you had uh, artillery shelling around them, you had men injured, she was nursing men on the street, and then shortly afterwards, her brother, who she was a couple of years older, known as Bud, uh, and by all accounts was basically her hero, went off and joined the Confederate Partisan Rangers and um, everything that you you read and, 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 and you can read into the narratives is that basically she was going to do whatever, you know, she was gonna emulate Bud because he was her hero and he was out there risking his life. And so naturally a 14 year old debutante decides I'll be a courier and spy for the Confederacy. Which she was surprisingly well suited to because of her horsemanship skills and her socialite skills. Exactly. She, she could blend in, in pretty much in any, any uh, situation, any, any place. Uh, there are tales that she would uh, go into uh, the camps and the towns where soldiers were staying, uh, Granby for one, which um, had a lot of troop movement by both sides because of the lead mines. And she would go into the saloons and just start playing the piano and singing and, and engaging the, the soldiers and getting intelligence and then taking it back to the Confederates. Now, how much do we know about how she was captured? The details are, are not really well kept. And that was often the case. You, you, often when you go through prov provost marshal records, you know, there might be a note, you know, seven guerrillas, you know, captured at its place and list the names. And that sometimes is it. What we do know is that she was interrogated at least twice um, at the Ritchie Mansion in Newtonia. And that's what usually gets told of the story. But the reason it, she was interrogated there is the prov provost marshal. And for those that are not familiar, the provost marshal basically was the military governor, pseudo governor of Missouri. Um, there, there was a civil government, state government, everything, but the provost marshal was in charge of prisoners and um, sort of the military legal issues. And so he would, he would go to the Ritchie mansion and the Ritchies were, were union. In fact, Mr. Ritchie was in, uh, a colonel and interrogate uh, guerrillas and Confederates captured in Southwest Missouri. So it was very common for people to be captured in this general area and taken there. So she was taken there to be interviewed, interrogated, and 
she escaped. We, we know that, we know that much. Um, the, the official records of the union are, are pretty silent on the details, not surprising. You know, you know, honestly, I'm not surprised that someone sitting at a field desk at the Ritchie Mansion did not put down all the exact details of how, how a 16 year old girl escaped them. <laughs> that is a, a bit embarrassing. It is. But the romantic version of the story is that she was being held in one of the upstairs uh, bedrooms and that she noticed that there were horses um, tied up below the window and that she opened the window and jumped out onto the back of a horse and escaped. Which is, of course, we've both been to the Ritchie Mansion a number of times. Mm -hmm. It's, while it is not hard to imagine, it's still an incredibly impressive feat. It is. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that if you had the skill and experience, it certainly could be done even by, you know, a 16-year-old girl. Most could not, I will say that. I, um, but properly motivated, and in, in my guess in this case, properly irritated by the situation and determined, yes. <laughs> I think it is definitely plausible with her background. I, I think it is too. Now, what, one area that I'm just interested to get your thoughts on is the, the term interrogation can be pretty forceful. Yes. What what were we likely looking at if she was taken for interrogation? Um, since, it was, since it was actually being conducted by the provost marshal's office in that setting, it, it, would, be a, it would be a stern questioning, um, would be my guess. Now, once prisoners were, were, were were taken in as prisoners of war and transferred to one of the prisons, uh, typically, and typically um, female prisoners from Western Missouri were taken to um, Jefferson City and kept at the prison, the Missouri State Penitentiary. The dungeons at that point were used as, um, as a prison for prisoners of war, for, for guerrillas. Um, and then uh, men from this area could either be taken there or to St. Louis to the Garriott Street Prison, which was actually Professor McDowell's medical college. Right. <clears throat> right. So uh, small now, world. Small world. Now, once you got to one of the prisons, you know, certainly conditions were were more harsh and. Certainly, um, there are not tales of, in Missouri, things being as dire as, say, Andersonville and some of the notorious prison camps, but there are tales of um, prison camps. Um, one that comes to mind is actually an officer that was from Douglas County, Missouri, and being held um, that, um, and it wasn't one of, one of those prisons. It was a prison camp somewhere in Southern Missouri. And I can't remember exactly where, um, where basically, uh, he described he and other prisoners 
um, being put on wheel of a of a water of a mill, a water wheel, and walking and turning the wheel for twelve hours a day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And a lot of this speaks into just the the horrors of war and the the breakdown of civil society that we saw uh, many places during the war, but particularly the southern Missouri. Yes, yes. Um, and 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 I think the fact that it became depopulated contributed to that as well. Yes. Now another thing that just came to mind as we were talking about Bell Star mm-hmm. and pure conjecture, but wondering uh, how you know the, the the possibility that Bell and her brother, but particularly mm-hmm. Bell, around the Carthage area might have actually been making games out of climbing up trees and then jumping onto horses throughout their childhood. I, that, that, I think that's entirely possible because their father was, was known as the best horseman in Southwest Missouri. So, um, and considering how really, I would say everything that you, we know of Belle and, and things you hear of her brother too, they were very competitive natured. And so I, I, certainly, I certainly can see that. Um, and, you know, one thing too, is that when Belle is mentioned, often she is in connection with someone else's story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, I think that it is a shame because she is one of those people that, you know, we, we joke about there being, you know, six people in the in the uh, 19th century and everything else is smoke and mirrors. And, and she's one of those people because when you talk about characters and people in the dark Ozarks, she knew so many of these people. She was uh, childhood friends with the James boys, with the younger boys. Um, there was rumored romances between her and a couple of the younger brothers. Um, and um, so all these names that you know, she was involved with. And so she gets mentioned in these contexts. Then later, of course, she marries her husband and they rob, they, they rob banks and so forth. And she gets told in the context of the story of Isaac Parker, the hanging judge at Fort Smith. And while, while we talk about the escapades of Calamity Jane and Annie Oakley and so forth, I find it interesting. It was Bill Starr that, that Isaac Parker had, had the biggest vendetta against and made, made it his personal goal to make sure that he arrested her and put her and her husband in prison and really rejoiced the day that he was able to do so. And they were sent to Michigan to prison for a time. There's also a, a later in, in life legend uh, about her seducing someone just to get out of jail. How, how realistic do you think that story is? Because obviously at this point, her, her legend is becoming a legend. Yeah, and I'm not so sure about that. Now there, now there is a version that they, they were trying to capture her later on, 
and and actually one of the Clayton brothers that we've talked about in previous episodes um, was tasked with arresting her and they uh, decided they had Judge Parker issue subpoenas for her and gave them to Bass Reeves. And the story goes that, and the story goes that she um, had decided to try to stop all this by having Clayton killed at a county fair. But then when her, but the story goes that when she heard Bass Reeves was on, on the case that she, she called off the hit and left town. So I kind of wonder if, if that story somehow comes out of the, of that story. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's potentially quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. And something that is important for people to understand about so many of these outlaws, Bellstar being one of them, uh, the, the James brothers being another, but many individuals, largely Confederate leaning, mm -hmm. who were at, at a very young age, 14, 15, 18, 19 years old, severely impacted emotionally, uh, and in some cases physically traumatized, losing family members, losing friends, watching family members die, watching family members be hanged in their yard, these yeah. types of these types of events in the case of Belle, watching pretty much everything that she knew in terms of stability be shelled by artillery mm -hmm. and and brought down the complete destabilization of the the safety net the infrastructure the family structure everything leading to of course first of all a a, a newfound purpose in fighting the war mm -hmm. and, and then, then and then she lost her brother her she lost yes. her brother a year later he was killed in fighting near sarcoxy and um then uh at some point during the war, her father decided to pull up states, which it was may seem sort of callous and and odd, but so many people did, and went to Texas. Yes. While the war's going on, basically took the rest of the family and went to Texas, including the story that they they disinterred Bud's body from the cemetery and took it to Texas and reburied it. Um, but Bell stayed up here. She, she stayed and stayed fighting the war, basically. <clears throat> and to me, that really speaks of her independence. Yes, I think she was a very independent person. And, and I think her background helped with that, with her education and, and her skill set. Um, but it just seems very hard to, you know, it imagine being in, in a war zone, your family leaves, you stay, you, you're acting as a, a spy. And just that alone makes me think, yeah, I can believe that she jumped out of a window and onto a horse. <laughs> 100%. When you begin to 
historically contextualize her life, that's actually pretty expected behavior. And pretty tame. Um, yes. You know, and sadly, in the end, you know, her her story has a big question mark at the end. She was murdered on her ranch in what is now Oklahoma at the age of 42. And technically, it is still an unsolved crime. Mm. Do we have any suspects? There are there there are um, there are various theories linking different people who were involved in the gangs that she and her ex-husband had been involved in. Um, I mean, I've even heard theories that somehow her son was involved. I I, I doubt that from from what I've read. Um, there, there's just a lot of tall tales there because no one really knows. Um, there is no smoking gun or, or indication exactly what happened other than maybe someone that she had crossed paths with in the past caught up with her and maybe even for a reason that we history doesn't even know about, who knows? Which is very possible. Now, mm -hmm. just on the, I, I wanna get your, your thoughts on this, on the subject of this era and, and rural middle America and highly independent women. And I'm mm -hmm. coming from some of my own background that uh, with my, uh, my mom, mm -hmm. my, my grandmother, my great grandmother in a, a rural setting, uh, farming setting to a degree something that modern day folks would look at and say it was a hillbilly setting. Yeah. That because of the necessity of division of labor, simply that you have, you all have to work. I mean, it's, it's not a, a sense of this is women's work versus men's work. It is, we're all in this. We, it has we to be done. To, we all have to get these things done. I grew up with a tradition of very, very strong, independent, critical thinking women who, from a, a, a cultural perspective, the outside looking in, wouldn't necessarily have recognized that. They didn't necessarily fit a, a latter, latter 20th century image of quote unquote strong independent women. But if you knew them, mm -hmm. you knew that they were, they were folks you could ride the river with to, uh, to, to do an old, you know, utilize a, a 19th century quote and that they were tough as nails, that they would do whatever was necessary to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And the concept, the modern concept or the modern look backwards of saying that society, 19th century society, early 20th century society, rural American backward society had these strict gender roles, et cetera. I never saw that in the sense of if you got to get stuff done, you do it. That's true. And, and I grew up with that too. I certainly, I've, my my mother my my grandmother's their sisters stories i heard about you know grandparents further back 
just the same. You you did what you had to do, and in in some ways, sometimes quote that women's work was as gritty or grittier than what the men did, uh, as far as having to kill the supper often and um, just the process of making soap and everything else it's it was not pretty and no. very hard work and you just did what you did I, I I have an I had an aunt that even into her late 80s she was more at home out working in the field than she was doing housework uh, and people in the family would say she, she worked like three men in the field, but you couldn't get her to clean the house. So <laughs> I can appreciate yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate that sentiment. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, my, you know, one, one of the traditions I grew up with was my, my grandma, my maternal grandma and mm -hmm. her sisters were all excellent shot. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, they hunted squirrels regularly, not with a shotgun, but with a 22. Right. And they did not like missing for the simple reason that that was an extra expense. Exactly. Uh, there, there's a story of someone in, in my distant family that um, they, they got to where they would just kill the squirrels with a, with a rock because it was cheaper. <laughs> yeah. And so I, when I, when I hear I think it's an interesting dichotomy in terms of authentic history and culture, as opposed to perhaps later 20th century and sometimes early 21st century expectation or an imposed perception that stories like Bellstar honestly remind me of stories of, of my family's past. The, uh, the same for me as well. And I think part, I think part of why people have a harder time of that comes from pop culture and our, so many people, their view of that time period is grounded in movies, which particularly from say the thirties through the uh, late sixties were run by the censors in Hollywood. So you had, you had, this rigidity of roles uh, that we don't show this, we don't show that, this is proper, this is improper. And I think that has kind of put in a, a layer of gloss on what people kind of thought everything was, that everything really was that way, as well as some of the Gothic Regency um, romantic literature that came out of that time period. You start looking, you start looking at the dime novels and this other side, the, the strong independent woman is accepted more in the dime novels of the day than in the quote literature. Very, very interesting. And of course the, the dime novels were the, uh, the mass, mass appeal to lower income true people who were living that life but also mm -hmm. i think in some ways they were now a lot of them they were greatly embellished but with that grain of truth in there 
a lot of those dime novels were actually written by reporters who came out west and actually saw the country, talked to people. So yes. they were getting the sort of you know the flavor of the area of the west more than sort of the lit literary version of it. And yes, there was embellishment on, on a lot of it, but you, you still get a, more of the character. I, think. I like that. And, and, I, and I should clarify in terms of what I was, was aiming for with, with my comment, the, the sense that there was more mass appeal running off of my theory anyway, that mass appeal, not because it was imaginary, but because there was a sense of the material resonating with a, with a background of authenticity. Oh, and I agree that that didn't hurt and that, that sold more, more books and magazines and serializations and newspapers, et cetera. You, you had a lot of that. And now looking back, often people will read some of that and say, well, that, that's all just made up, you know, and it, it all wasn't. Correct. <clears throat> and something that we even see today, and I know you and I had a, at an earlier off-camera conversation mm -hmm. about this, that sometimes the interpretation, the fictional interpretation is more resonant of truth mm -hmm. than we anticipate or realize. That's, that's really true. And uh, so I think people, you have to look at those, those things with an open eye and start looking at it, what makes sense in that context. And in this context, these, you know, this romantic version of the story of Bell Star makes a lot of sense. It does. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts on this. Of course, my background, my family ancestry histories, as yours in, in many cases, are, are dealing with rural, middle American, and coming from a background that you, you do what you got to do. Yes. And yeah, there are no excuses. <laughs> no. And at the same time, that is not to negate the reality that particularly in more high society or more affluent uh, stratas of culture, certainly in the Victorian era, the Edwardian era, et cetera, there were a lot of expectations in terms of gender roles that we would find highly constrictive. Yes, very. that's very, very true. So when, and just a complete aside counterpoint, when, when you're looking at cases of say, Lizzie Borden, a lot of that comes in because you, you, you have more urbane, wealthy, Victorian roles that really get caught up into what makes sense of what really happened in that case that um, just do not apply in this situation. The uh, high trait neuroticism that gave us the likes of H.P. Lovecraft a couple of decades later, 
exactly. <laughs> which, which, you know, uh, <laughs> out of control xenophobia aside, I'm still glad that we have Cthulhu. So yes. <laughs> there, there is that quick digression into sci-fi. But in, in that regard, it does make me wonder how much, obviously there, there were many factors that pushed people west, that pushed mm -hmm. people to the ends of the, the, the boundary lands, the, the pioneering spaces. But also I wonder how many people moved at this point into Missouri, into the further, the further areas simply to get away from that kind of constrictive society and say, I, it might be really, really difficult. I might die out here, but at least I'm going to live on my own terms. You know, and that's fair. And, and to be perfectly honest, that, that kind of fits a lot of the characters that end up playing a role in some of these other sort of tales in Newtonia, getting back to Newtonia. Um, it, it does we you know we we have we have a menagerie of of people that uh it kind of ended up in missouri from other places for various reasons um that uh ended up um encountering each other throughout the 1860s and newtonia sort of being a, a culmination of of, of their uh, interplays, so. <laughs> there, there, there are, and especially when, of course, Newtonia at the time, Newtonia, Missouri, about present day driving time, what, 15, 15, 20 minutes west or east, I'm sorry, I'm, yeah. anyway, 15 minutes <laughs> east of uh, Neo Show. Yes, roughly, yes. And, and not not much it, this is a very small town and it was comparatively speaking a, a small town at the uh at the time but mm -hmm. we are we're dealing with the fact that the towns were a lot smaller in, in that era very true you know so when you hear that it, it had about a hundred people that sounds very very small but not not really that small in comparison to other areas i think you know we were talking about bell star coming from carthage and at that at that time carthage was about three or four hundred people yes and it was it was the the biggest town in in the region so right. um yes it, it so it was smaller but not 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 in the sense that we view it today, no. Correct. Now, interestingly enough, the, the, the present day population of Newtonia is about 100 people. That's true. It, it really has not changed much in that time period. <laughs> but it was very important at the time because it was located not far from the Granby lead mines. There yep. was a mill there. And so strategically, there were resources for both sides there. Plus, the, the Ritchie Mansion was uh, a fairly large home where there wasn't much around for miles and a very 
uh, sizable limestone barn, which of course made a very defensive uh, position. And so strategically, both sides went, that makes a good place to, to uh, position ourselves. It, it Unfortunately does. Unfortunately for the, the Richies and, <laughs> the and, and everyone else in the town. And the, the other thing that I think is very important to take into consideration, of course, today we have a lot of roads intercrossing uh, the, the region. But at the yeah. time, pretty much the main, in that, that basic area, the main south, north south uh, route from Arkansas up to, to Granby, to Carthage, et cetera, was through Newtonia. It was a, 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 <laughs> a stopover and it was in the yeah. way in essence. So for troop movements, they were likely going to be intersecting there. Yeah, they were going to be on your front step. Yeah. And, and they were. And, yeah. and I guess and, when we... I guess another thing we should mention as far as the town not growing, not only did it survive the war in two battles, but there, the town, there was a huge town fire in the late 1860s too that um, um, destroyed a lot of things. Fortunately, not the Ritchie Mansion, but um, so it, it survived that and still maintained its population, which is something a lot of places did not in the region. It's, it's honestly surprising that it survived. It really is. Um, when we talk about some of the personalities, I guess, we, first of all, we need to talk about um, Matthew Ritchie. Um, yeah. Mr. Yes. Ritchie was born in Tennessee in 1813. Moved, he moved here in the 1830s. And um, we also have to remember at that time, the, the edge of Newton County, where he moved to in Newtonia, literally abutted up against Indian territory. It was not the state of Oklahoma. It was territory. It was the Indian territory where basically you had the Indian tribes and lots of people who were trying to lose themselves <laughs> or hide from something in their past. So uh, yeah. quite a sort of a um, really a frontier uh, in, in of itself and Mr. Ritchie ended up he was a judge a state representative state senator um, he was a delegate to the state uh, convention in 1861 and that you know that happened um, once Governor Claiborne Jackson and his supporters abandoned Jefferson City with the intended purpose of um, holding a convention and seceding from the union, the um, union um, leaning forces uh, held a convention and basically reformed the government uh, in the summer of 1861. Mr. Ritchie was a delegate there and voted against seceding. Um, and then he became um, an officer in, in the Union Army. So um, he kind of had a bullseye painted on his on his rooftop for the Confederates anyway. Very true. And a incredibly beautiful home that stood yes. out. 
Yeah, it, it really is. It's a modified federal um, style uh, brick. And uh, one of my favorite, you know, details there is that uh, while most people did not uh, build in closets in their homes at the time because your taxes went up with every doorway in your house. So most people said, I'll put my clothes in a wardrobe instead. Mr. Ritchie decided to have closets installed, um, yes. which is one of those little things to say, I can afford it. <laughs> and, and something that would be easily overlooked today because we're just simply not thinking about it, but exactly <laughs> a, an ostentatious uh, status symbol. And, yeah, a little bit of bragging rights. <laughs> and of course, this is going to lead into some of our prominent ghost stories. But let's talk about Mr. Ritchie's uh, wives. Yes, um, he was married twice. His first wife actually died before the war. Um, and then... Um, and there is a family cemetery in the front yard, uh, literally yards from the front door. And she's buried there. And then he remarried. And he, he and the second wife are buried there too. If I recall right, he's buried between them. Which is very diplomatic. I guess. <laughs> um cozy we'll say very 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 cozy and <laughs> very interesting in the sense that richie is from from tennessee uh native southerner mm -hmm. slaveholder and ardent union supporter and and that may seem confusing to modern uh minds but it wasn't that uncommon um in Missouri. Um, no. Colonel Phelps from Greene County from Springfield was another example yes. that of a slaveholder uh, who was a union officer and opposed the session and was a staunch supporter of the union. Um, yes. So it's not something that is isolated, but uh, it, it just seems contrary to our modern sense. It does, and a, a important aspect is simply stepping outside of contemporary perception, moving, moving ourselves outside to, to essentially be highly receptive to a, a very different uh, environment, uh, mm -hmm. psychological environment, emotional environment, but then just a physical environment. And as I yeah, as you were talking about that, um, Mr. Phelps ended up with one of the most well-known Union generals of the war, his corpse in his, you know, root cellar, <laughs> root cellar uh, for a time. Yeah, and the Daniel Lyon. <laughs> we just buried him there to keep him happy, not not something you know, that you know, it's kind of like the old joke of you know how was theater mrs mrs lincoln well you know how how are the how are the peach preserves mrs phelps yes. 
<laughs> would be a little unsettling when you went down for the pickles. It would. <laughs> and and that really brings up just that reality that as first of all, uh, such an interesting dichotomy in terms of analysis because human nature hasn't changed. Human nature yeah. hasn't changed. In, 150 years it hasn't changed in 250 years as far as we can tell it hasn't changed in 7,000 years if you look at what the the Romans and the Celts and various groups were doing historically yeah. but the environments in which human beings find themselves in the 1860s in rural Missouri northern Arkansas vastly different in terms of expectation and requirements for survival and it's it's incredibly strong mm, homage to the resilience and the complexity of human beings it, it really is and you know you can flesh that out you with between counterpoint with mr ritchie and of course phelps and then um the the two men that come to bear so much influence on what happens to Newtonia in the Civil War, and that would be uh, General uh, James Blunt of the Union and General Joe Shelby of the Confederacy. <laughs> and, and General and, Price, but but let, let, let's, yes. let's be candid here, the... Um, the um, the interplay between Shelby and Blunt goes throughout the war and sort of culminates with Newtonia. It does. And it's also for me, in terms of analysis of uh, Confederate action in the war in relationship to General Joe Shelby. And mm -hmm. General Joe Shelby is such a standout because he emerges from the war with his honor intact and then goes on quite dramatically goes on to serve the union or or the united states government in yes. in in the following years and does so with great distinction and with a keen eye in terms of furthering union the union and reconciliation of the state of missouri with itself yes um, and that's, you know, that's not a small feat when you, when you were on the losing side. And not only that, you refused to surrender and left the country. Correct. Then there, came back. <laughs> so it, then, it, says, it says quite a bit about uh, Joe Shelby. Something, and of course, with General Shelby, one of the most for me, amazing stories is his refusal to capitulate and his, the legend anyway, which I'm along with the legend of Bellstar leaping from the Richie's mansion second floor, I'm going to say happened just because I want to. And mm -hmm. also because I think uh, contextually and historically, there's a high degree of plausibility based on the characters at hand. Mm -hmm of General Shelby riding across the Rio Grande and drowning the Confederate flag rather than surrender it. Yes, and I mean, and, and, 
anecdotally, there were quite a number of witnesses to that, not only among his men, but people who lived in the area that said that in fact did happen. So um, I, I do tend to believe that as well. Um, and ironically, he and Mr. Ritchie had a very similar background. He, while Mr. Ritchie was from Tennessee and came with wealth to Missouri, uh, Shelby was from Kentucky and came to Missouri with wealth. Yes. Um, and just and both were slaveholders. So from that perspective, they they were a lot alike. Uh, but for some various reasons in, in his personal life that we've talked about in other episodes, um, Shelby ended up committing to the Confederacy. Correct. And it, it should also be noted in many of these cases, both Union siding and Confederate siding leaders or, or characters in the, in the war in Missouri were in many cases pledging themselves to their Missouri. Right, yes. And so, um, except for the war, they probably would have been gotten along pretty well. I, I think that's fair. And our, our larger, many years distant, Victor's write the history books, bird's eye view parses the 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 conflict into north versus south and right. and and understandably so from that distance but in missouri it was the question of what does it mean to me as a missourian yes and for a wide variety of complex reasons, someone could lean toward union or confederacy in terms of answering that question. Exactly. Then we bring into this, this little uh, dance, um, James Blunt. Who yes, our, our union hero. Our union hero who came to Missouri, well, Missouri by way of Kansas, but then before that, Maine, from yes. Maine, came to actually Kansas and um, was an abolitionist, mm -hmm. ended up in Anderson County in Greeley uh, about 1857, which, and Greeley, that's not very, that's same county, very, uh, just a few miles away from Garnett, and we've talked about events in the Garnett that so many people that we talk about cross paths there as well, that he ended up there at the same time that John Brown was operating in Kansas and raiding in, uh, in Kansas and Missouri. Um, and in fact, Blunt uh, claimed to have written with John Brown. Right. And, and to have had Brown as a as a personal house guest, and that he helped hide uh, slaves that uh, John Brown liberated from Vernon County, Missouri, in 1858 before they were smuggled to Canada. So, you, you 
the, these issues have been developing with these men for some time. Now, um, of course, uh, Blunt was then later um, uh, associated a bit with Atchison and Lane and so forth. And these, you know, were were the the men that Shelby opposed because, well, mainly because they burned his warehouse down. Correct. Uh, and and not just his warehouse, like the the a huge chunk of his wealth went mm -hmm. went with it. Yeah, and that's that's an understandable reason, uh, all by itself. And it really speaks into some very complex sociocultural and socioeconomic issues going on between Eastern Kansas. Western Missouri mm -hmm. and the conflicts of the question of slavery, the question of free state. And what is oftentimes overlooked is that there were heroes and villains on both sides of yes. that. And individuals, of course, one of the now unpopular historical narrative notes, you know, from, from contemporary uh, journals and letters, et cetera, from individuals, in, particularly in Missouri, was that there were many individuals, the, the situation of Free State Kansas attracted a, a lot of essentially potential guerrilla fighters or profit seekers who could operate they weren't doing, we would not consider their actions ethical, but they were operating under the ethics of abolition in order mm -hmm. to achieve personal gain mixed in with individuals who were, were functioning for, for very uh, altruistic reasons because they truly cared about index slavery. Right, and, and John Brown, for instance, would be someone that kind of straddled that because he certainly started out altruistic um, about abolition and ending slavery and liberating slaves and ultimately took on the position of any means just is are justified yes. and uh, some pretty atrocious things happened as a result um, that uh, it, it's really fair to say why as you said that they're they're good guys and bad guys on both sides of all of this. Um, and ironically, Shelby and Blunt just kind of shadow each other throughout the war. I mean, they um, Blunt first was a major general in Kansas, and this is actually just before the war. So he was operating um, under with Lane and everything before, before things actually break out when Shelby was actually operating um in kansas but not in a military capacity he was a private citizen who then later was recruited um to become a union officer and turned it down whereas on the same day um the same 
officials in St. Louis, they talked to Shelby, they talked to uh, Sherman and Grant. <laughs> yes. And this all took place in St. Louis, correct? <laughs> that that took place in, in St. Louis. And they, they wanted Shelby because he'd already proven himself as a capable cavalry uh, officer, even though he had no military experience, um, and turned them down because of these various business reasons and personal uh, reasons. Uh, and so it, it's just very um, ironic. So he and Blunt had had, you know, sort of uh, near run-ins in Kansas. And then they both um, were uh, at the Battle of Carthage, where Earl yes. Star was. Exactly. So, <laughs> they were all there. <laughs> and, and, and how far is, it's not very far, comparatively speaking. How far is Carthage mm -hmm. from Newtonia? I haven't driven that specifically. I, I Specifically, I, I, I haven't driven specifically Carthage to Newtonia, but my, my, my guess would be roughly 30 miles. Yeah. yeah. Something so like we're, that. We're dealing with and so many personalities, so many individuals at the same time with comparatively few roads, sparse population, and then a number of key critical realities associated with the war. The, the biggest one, which is very easy to overlook today, is Granby and the lead mines. It is. People don't think about it, um, but it, it was very, very um, important at the time uh, because who controlled Granby basically controlled munitions output for the region. Yes. And well, the entire theater, really, and part of the Western theater, too. So, yes. So this is this is the these are military resources that are on the frontier, they are comparatively unprotected. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln is in Washington, DC, looking at this reality saying, this is a priority. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they are because they, they could just see what was gonna happen if, you know, it, it became very important and and the confederate the confederacy gained a lot of ground uh, in in the western the two western theaters because of granby in the early part of the war until p ridge so yes now i want i want to pivot to the paranormal for just a moment and then come back sure. to the first battle okay mrs ritchie is has been seen in the Ritchie Mansion. Yes. And and if it were the 1860s, that would be expected. Right. But she has been seen since, uh, up until the present day. Yes, yes. Um, and I'll start with one of my favorite stories, which I've actually heard from law enforcement over time. Um, and this happened probably now, 10, 12 years ago, that the, the Southwest Missouri Drug Task Force was assembling 
to go do a raid. And whenever they meet, there's officers from various departments and they will meet somewhere, all get in gear, get their plan together, and then all go in mass to the location. So they usually try to meet somewhere that's not too obvious. So they had ended up parking all their vehicles in front of the Ritchie Mansion, which if you go through there and on the highway where they were parked, you would probably not even notice anything. So while they're getting ready, someone looks up and they notice a, a woman dressed in 1800s attire standing on the upper level of the porch just staring at them watching and you know I've heard a couple of of the men talk about it first I thought oh so someone's in the mansion you know that it's you know someone's doing something in costume, you know? And then they just, you know, get the sense, no, that's not what's going on. And she never moves, she never says anything, but she's just staring at them. And they get this uneasy, you hear all these guys, you know, these guys in SWAT gear, and they're getting uneasy by watching this, this woman on the, on the porch. And so, you know, after, you know, a couple of minutes, they start realizing, oh, she's not real. And then, then after a little bit, she dissipates and just vanishes and uh, made quite an impression on them. Um, as, as can be imagined. As can be imagined. And so I, I just envisioned this of one of the Mrs. Ritchie's standing out there going, what in the world are they doing in my front yard? <laughs> Very much so. And the the impressions, the, uh, the, the evidence collected, and just the general analysis is one of vigilance. Yes, and I think in very um, protective, you know, still taking care of the house is, is the sense I get, you know. I, um, I do too. A lot of the stories uh, do come from the time period when the Darch family lived there, 80s, part of the 90s through there. And, um, and um, one of the stories is that um, there was a storm and a tree limb fell on the grave of one of the wives. And it's not, it doesn't, I don't know which one. And basically, you know, they're, they're vaults there in the cemetery. And the, the lid to the vault was broken when this tree limb fell. And um, one of the, the kids in the family found it and uh, basically put the pieces kind of back together, cover it up, because of course, the, the coffin was exposed. And um, the next morning, that child woke up to every blanket in, in the house being stacked on top of them. Um, and everyone else denied doing it. And so um, the family ended up concluding that Mrs. Ritchie had 
made sure that the boy was covered up very soundly and warmly uh, as thanks for putting the, the lid back together as best he could. I Which think is a, very, it's a beautiful, a very, it's a very sweet story. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I've heard stories of that, you know, at times uh, either shadows or uh, or faint apparitions to be seen in the house, particularly like walking up and down the stairs, that kind of thing. And it was assumed it was family members. Um, and most, seems like most people think it's one or other of the wives that seems to be most prominent. Um, and I, um, the first time I was in the house years ago, I was there actually uh, for photos for my first book. Uh, on the Civil War, and uh, and real quickly, what which book is that? Oh, uh, Civil War Ghosts of Southwest Missouri, and um, by Lisa Lindsay Martin, available on Amazon. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. There, there were reenactors there that day. They were getting ready for some reenactment, you know, some a battle reenactment or something. So they were doing stuff on the grounds, you know, and. So someone let me in the house and, and went through and we did a tour and so forth. And Alex actually was with me, he was taking photos and I had an audio recorder with me so I could record my interview with the fella. And he was dressed as um, Missouri State Guard, Confederate State Guard. And we were just in you know jeans, t-shirts, et cetera. So we weren't in costume. And so I was carrying a recorder with me and we had been in the house five minutes and we were standing in the room that originally was the dining room. And um, so as I'm listening to it later, I'm asking a question, the fellow's answering the question. And in a pause, there's a very clear woman's voice that says, get out of my house. Yes. <laughs> which you know again just gives you the sense that one of the Richie women is is in charge um and sometimes when I tell that story people say oh my gosh you know do you think she was upset with you or whatever and I didn't take it that way I think she, it was directed to the guide who was dressed as a confederate <laughs> she didn't want she didn't want him in her house <laughs> And, and I think that's very fair. Now, just as, as a little bit of analysis on this, one of the things I'm going to check out the next time I'm there, which is coming right uh -huh. up, is I, mean, I want to see if I can tell which of the crypts were da was damaged. Yes, me too. And I don't know if an entire lid was replaced. I don't remember now. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested in finding that out because that might be a little bit of a clue of, of which... Miss, Mrs. Ritchie is the most active, perhaps. Yes. Um, but there are tales of, you know, the family, you know, hearing voices, hearing footsteps, seeing things, um, things, um, you know, being moved like a like walking in a room and, and something is a different spot on the table. I've heard various of those kind of stories, you know. Mm -hmm. um, which also kind of pairs up with what happens 
with the current caretaker who we were both friends with. He has similar things happen. So which which was not the case initially is my understanding. Right. But that over time, it's gone to where he'll notice that some, you know, something is moved, you know, like go to bed, get up in the morning and go downstairs and something is, you know, in a different position. And last time we talked, he even said, well, that he, so he, he thought, well, he tries something like he'd set a, 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 you know, a Coke can somewhere and just leave it and see if maybe it would move or something. And anything that he actually has done to try to get something moved, they haven't touched. Um, but that, you know, he hears, he's woke, been woken up during the night with sounds of people in the house uh, sounds of doors opening and closing and go investigate and nothing is different than how he left it. So something is active. Agreed. And I, it, the Ritchie Mansion is one of my favorite places to visit. I, I do. Mine too. It really uh, is. Ritchie, Ritchie Mansion and, and our often mentioned Kinder House. Yes. Uh, both very similar in style, that neoclassical mm-hmm. federalist style. And for individuals who don't know what we're talking about, look up the Hermitage. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a mm, edge of the known civilized America, United <laughs> yes. States version of, uh, of that style. Yes. Very... Well, I mean- well, these were the people that that were from places like Nashville and 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 so forth that came this direction, and so they 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 built homes if they had the means that were similar to the Hermitage and so forth. That you know, not too many of them quite that large, but uh, very similar for for those reasons. You know, for those exactly, and they are. They are beautiful. They are imposing. Yes. Um, and just very sobering as far as you, you, you feel like you really are. It's easy. It, I, I think the phrase that you're in sacred space gets bandied around a lot when you are in a place that has a lot of history. But yeah, you get that sense in both of those places that on the outside you, you can in in around you say okay there's nothing spectacular about newtonian missouri or the the space right around the kendrick house per se but you walk in and you just have that sense that the walls have witnessed an awful lot you do and that a lot of that energy remains even non-sentient energy just the the encapsulation of energy within the the walls Yes. And, and I think that that's a good way of putting it. I think that's one experience that quite a few people have had at the Rishi Mansion on, with our events or have talked about walking into a room and just being hit by the energy. Right. I think that's very fair. And sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming. Uh-huh. And uh, sometimes it can be very welcoming. Now, my take on perhaps more of the sentient energy of the Ritchie Mansion 
is that it tolerates me. <laughs> so far. And I'm, um, I'm curious to see how things are going to be on this upcoming event. You feel like you're not embraced as much as you are at Kendrick? Not as much as at Kendrick. Kendrick is a very warm, very warm place. You know, and I, I have to say, I, Rishi mentioned it, it is a little more solemn as, as for, um, as my mother would say, a sober socks um, attitude. She would always tell a kid, don't be sober socks. So when they're being too serious. <laughs> so, um, and th there is that, that feel of seriousness that kind of overlays where at Kendrick House, it's very much, regardless of all the things that have happened there, very much a sense of home. It is. It's, and, and I think that not that the Russian man doesn't, but no, but there is there is a solemnity there that the as opposed to a sense of hmm, I, I'm I'm actually at a loss of a word, which is odd for me, but. Me it's it, it is a a vigilance again mm -hmm. coming back to to the rich mansion a, a vigilance and certainly i had a unique experience in terms of again just impressions but mm -hmm. during our april event of, of getting a very strong sense of someone on the on the top porch, which is where Mrs. Ritchie is seen. Yes. And, and a sense of mm, certainly cautiousness and concern. The idea of what are you doing in my house? What are, what are you people doing? And you know, that might be a good way to, a good point to now talk about the battles because in in context, it makes a lot of sense that you have that feeling there and wondering what are people doing, because not only was it the site of a battle, it was the site of two battles um, that um, um, had a lot of um, impact, including cannonball damage to the house, which some of which it is, is still visible. I was going to say there's there's still there's still a few chunks missing and yeah that they they left that way um the, and the, go ahead the the first battle uh was september 30th 1862 this is very early in the war it was regarded as a confederate victory and to contextualize the uh the conflict it is important to understand a couple of key resources, one of them obviously being lead, the lead mines yeah. of Grand Coup, but a, a more pressing or more immediate resource that was needed was something that I think is very easy, very easy for us to overlook at this point. And that was grazing ground, grass, hay, because the True. armies ran on horses 
and mules. And this was grazing fodder uh, was the equivalent of gasoline. Yes, very, and, very much so. And from what we can tell in uh, the summer of 1862, the heavy grazing that was necessary for the Confederate forces and the Missouri partisan forces, which had been pushed into Northwest Arkansas, had grazed over the, the bulk of available ground in the comparatively speaking, extremely rugged Boston Mountain region. Mm -hmm. And the, the hay and the hay fields and the grass in the Newtonia region, which was along the road northward, was available. Right. So it made, so I mean, it just made it doubly a target that um, uh, almost out of desperation, not, not even so much strategic, but you know, you had to do something and take the risk. From yes. their perspective. And that is what precipitated the battle, the first, uh, the first battle of Newtonia, in the sense mm -hmm. that the, the Confederate forces were moving up out of Arkansas to make sure that they could feed their horses. Yes. And um, so, you know, it just ended up that's where they ended up meeting, you know. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's it's pretty um, graphic when you think about some of the descriptions of the aftermath. Um, yes, you had you know they, it's described that um, the effects of the federal artillery. There were dead horses all through town, torn by torn apart by shells. Uh, there were cannibal hall, holes in the, the Ritchie house and barn uh, through other buildings uh, throughout town, you know. So um, this was pretty devastating. It was. And so I, I certainly can see how it would engender a sense of vigilance and worry whenever people are around. A very, very deep concern and very deep concern in regards to large numbers of people that you don't know. Exactly. Um, plus, like a hundred people, like a hundred people on a tour. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and the house was commandeered several times by by the Confederates during you know through the war too. Uh, they would just occupy it when there weren't enough federal troops in the area to protect it. So uh, the family would go through periods where basically they were under house arrest. Right, which just those those layers, which which again, I don't know, but it infers uh, a decent possibility that the Mrs. Ritchie who is haunting the mansion is the second Mrs. Ritchie who went through all of that. I I kind of wonder, yeah, uh, I do I do wonder, um, and then I think another point to kind of think about when we talk about these personalities, you have that battle in 1862, and then the next battle is late in 1864, but in between those two points, Shelby and Blunt are, are basically on a um, almost continual uh, 
intersecting course, running into each other, battling each other, um, and, um, you know, going back and forth. And, um, and at Baxter Springs in uh, October of 1863, it's, it's kind of amusing. The, um, you know, and, and Shelby, he, he had been fighting to the point, you know, in different battles. One battle, he had four horses shot out from under him. Another, he had two shot out from under him. Um, and, um, but, um, and he was basically chasing Blunt down. And um, they, he basically, when they get to Baxter Springs, they're chasing, you know, they're, they're chasing them, but Quantrell's men end up there. And um, they slaughtered a lot of the Union soldiers. Blunt escaped. Um, and Quantrell, you know, sort of famously basically tries to take credit for all of this, saying that Shelby couldn't, couldn't get blunt that I did uh, yes. although he, he escaped you know too so but um, aside from the fact that it was Shelby that had chased him from what you know northern Missouri down to Baxter Springs but never mind that and so in um, during this time period you know in six weeks Shelby had, Shelby's men had ridden 1500 miles uh, in two weeks, and um, so sort of the outcome of that is that time period, Shelby gets promoted, his reputation grows as a cavalry leader, and Blunt's uh, reputation is kind of tarnished because of losing Master Springs and the fort being burned, um, and so that um, then it starts coming out that he that Blunt looks like he was stealing from the army and from the yes. supply lines, um, and so this is kind of where their stars start diverging, you know, um, as as far as integrity in the end, um, and then uh, ironically. Um, it was um, uh, General Curtis, uh, they, they uh, are fighting General Curtis of the Union and his son was killed at Baxter Springs and they right. sort of all end up ultimately back at Newtonia, which basically becomes the last battle in Missouri. It does, and the second battle uh, was October 28th, 1864. We're preparing to host this event on October 29th. So one day after the, the, uh, the anniversary of the 1864 battle, it was a union victory. And mm -hmm. it, important to understand, this was the last engagement, uh, the last engagement in Missouri of the war, but also, and, and one of the last engagements of the war Mm -hmm. But it was also the final engagement of Sterling Price's attempted uh, attack expedition mm -hmm. into Missouri, which right. was, was, was a huge push uh, coming up 
uh, forcing uh, a, a Confederate spearhead, really an attempt to, to essentially retake the state, uh, targeting St. Louis, targeting Jefferson City, coming close to modern day Kansas City, and then finally retreating southward. And uh, something that I think it, it does, it, is difficult for our modern, I would say modern uh, 20th century inured minds with, uh, you know, being on the winning side of, for, for good reason, of the Second World War. And honestly, uh, having endured mm, 50 plus years of American football, that no one talks about uh, a strategic loss, an effective strategic loss, and something that we see that is unbelievably brilliant, and we saw it, we see it, we see it multiple times during the war with General Shelby and his cavalrymen, but we see it specifically at the Second Battle of Newtonia, is that Shelby maneuvers a, an incredibly sophisticated and effective uh, retreat that is both a delaying action to allow Price's forces and, and the supply trains to get mm -hmm. back into Arkansas while putting up, quite frankly, one hell of a fight against the, the onrushing and typically um, better armed and gr greatly outnumbering Union forces of General Curtis, who had an axe to grind because his son, not just answer, but he had, his son had been killed by yeah. well, Quantrell's men technically, but in Shelby's um, uh, uh, movement. And, you know, so again, all these people are coming into play. And then ironically, while, as you said, it, it was very uh, brilliant maneuvering, um, but they were fighting so intensely in covering the retreat that Shelby's men ended up moving away from him too quickly. And actually, he was surrounded by um, some of Curtis's men and was uh, was almost to the point of having to surrender to surrender when ironically considering that Quantrell had uh, said less than flattering things about him at Baxter Springs Quantrell some of Quantrell's men actually rode in and surrounded Curtis's men saving Shelby led by Frank James correct Again. Who, was, who was, of course, a, you know, childhood friend of Bell Star. Yes, who had been imprisoned in the mansion that at that point was maybe a mile away. The exactly. mansion, not Bell at that point. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, there, you know, things just keep kind of coming full circle through all of this. Um but, um, and, and then of course, after the war, um, 
ultimately, you know, Shelby returns to Missouri and is um, praised by even his former foes that uh, for doing more than just about anyone to uh, reconcile the state and and people move on um, and became U.S. Marshal, et cetera. And then by 1873, you know, General Blunt had been prosecuted for stealing from the army, ends up in an insane asylum and dying of syphilis. Yes, it <laughs> is a, an interesting point counterpoint between the two men, to yes. say the least. I find it also interesting that both Bellstar and General Joe Shelby are not as well known as I think they should be. I, I agree. And, and, you know, some people may say, well, they, they were on the wrong side, but, you know, you have to look at these things in context at the time. And, and, and one thing that you have to say about Joe Shelby is later on in life, he candidly said, you know, that he should not have been in Kansas before the war and, you know, during bleeding Kansas. Um, he was there because of what had happened to his own property um, and that he was wrong. Yes. Um, and, um, and on that part of it, he conceded Blunt was right, you know, in, in, in his views on, on slavery, et cetera, at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so he, even through all that, he could concede that, whatever Blunt had done later, you know, he was right at that moment. And so um, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, you, you have to admire the ability to say, okay, I was wrong. Yes, it, you really do. Now, coming back to the first battle, now, mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of the second battle, if you are at the Ritchie Mansion with us for an event, a great deal of the second battle actually took place just a little bit southwest of town in what is now fields and country roads and if you drive that space now it's to me very poignant to under to to realize that this space that if you didn't know you would simply regard as pastoral farmland mm -hmm. uh, place to grow corn place to grow soybeans uh, just like so much of middle America at this point, was a space in which Americans were fighting and dying. Yes, hundreds of, hundreds of men dying. Yes, and that is, is very, hmm, is honestly difficult for me even, and, and I understand it rationally and historically, mm -hmm but it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. I associate this type of action with, honestly, with, with the war that I grew up studying, uh, which was the Second World War. Yeah. And the idea that these things take place elsewhere. And, and, and we are fairly insulated in the last 150 years because we haven't had war on our doorsteps since the civil war yes thankfully thankfully and 
Um, but that that kind of uh, also makes me think about the Civil War cemetery at Newtonia, uh, yes. where some of those some of those men are buried, um, and we will tour Saturday as well. Very solemn. It is. It and is very much a liminal space. It is. I mean, it, it is in a physical sense as well as an atmospheric sense because you you literally walk, you know you are walking into another space physically when you get there, um, and I'm not going to spoil that for anyone that's coming on the tour, but you you know when you walk off the road and you walk through that gate, you you feel like you physically are in a different space. And it certainly has a different atmosphere, a very watchful atmosphere. Uh, and there are tales people have, you know, talked about um, hearing booms of cannons, uh, um, getting recordings of battle sounds, things like that in that area, which, of course, there was fighting all through there. So yes. and can the cannon fire would have been heard there. So that's certainly very, very possible. Um, it is. And I can say, I always feel like I'm not alone when I'm there. I do too. It, it is a very unique space. I would encourage anyone to just experience the space. First yes. of all, uh, second of all, the, from my understanding, the cemetery was founded because of the first battle of Newtonia. That's my understanding as well. And that is why it is referred to that it's called the Civil War Cemetery. Um, and that there are later burials there, but oh yeah. Uh, and there are and there are graves, there are unmarked soldiers' graves there that are we don't know who they are. It's unnamed. Yes. Uh, I I get a very, very strong sense. We've discussed this. Uh, there, there's a lot of activity just in the in the immediate forested area on the west side of the cemetery. Yes, that's always my sense too. It's it can be depending upon one's perspective. It can be eerie. Mm -hmm. uh, I do find it myself to be incredibly beautiful. I do too. I, and although I feel like I'm being watched, I find it very peaceful too. Same. I, I don't. I don't get the sense of a malevolent watching or a, or an angry watching, but I definitely get a sense of being watched and and being in the presence of others. Exactly. And which I think makes a lot of sense there. So um, and with with all of these things, there's no there's no wonder that there are hauntings there and at the mansion and so forth. Um, I would I'd be surprised if there weren't considering all the events. When you think about that, and with with the first battle, uh, two hundred and forty five Union soldiers dead, uh, approximately a hundred Confederate soldiers dead, three hundred we could say an estimate three hundred and fifty men mm -hmm. died within this very small space. And the second battle, even more. Yes. So you you think about that even just the the sense of the sense of sacred ground in terms of mm -hmm. these men's sacrifice is extraordinary yes and um 
and even in that, that you know, there there is one tale of you know one of the soldiers that is that, that is buried there um, was not actually killed in action, but at the end of the battle, um, he was recognized by um, someone as having killed his father, this other soldier's father. Um, and who walked up and then stabbed him and killed him. Yes. And then also the same fellow was known, he was um, quite the guerrilla fighter and um, was known to have actually beheaded uh, either four or five men um, in retribution for something else that had happened in the war over by Etzeter, Missouri, in Missouri yes. County. Yes, which is uh, we get well if we get started on beheadings, we'll be here all night. That's a that's another yeah. topic entirely. But it is and, and uh, of particular historic note, but I think also potentially interesting in terms of possible uh, paranormal gathering evidence. Well, certainly, is, I think. Because it happened, you know, it, it wasn't even the heat of the battle. It was afterwards, and you know, it was a summary execution, basically. Yes. Um, which, which certainly could cause some activity to occur. It, it could. I'm I'm curious, and I know we haven't done a lot of of uh, of research into this, but just in terms of paranormal activity recorded throughout the town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard I have heard people say that there are at least several other houses in town that have um, a lot of activity, um, uh, including a couple that are um, not quite as old as the Ritchie Mansion, but from slightly after the Civil War. Yes. And so, uh, and and what I've heard are are I and I don't mean this in any in any derisive way, but, you know, sort of normal hauntings where you have, you know, typical activity of footsteps, shadows, uh, sometimes a disembodied voice, that kind of thing. Very typical of places where people have been for a long time. Um, yes. So the Ritchie Mansion or the cemetery are not isolated uh, from what I can tell. And that is very, I, I think, very fair considering the overall history of the immediate area also it, it's is worth mentioning it, even briefly at, at any time that we talk about the the first battle of newtonia is the native american participation which was very historic yes and and that kind of that kind of goes uh that's sort of the counterpoint to price's men coming in the area looking for um forage for the horses is that um, this is one of the few times that over half of the participants on both sides were Indian, um, yes. were natives, um, some aligned with the Union, some aligned with the Confederacy. And, but a lot of them were fighting because their circumstances had gotten so bad during the war with supply interruptions and so forth into the Indian territory that they were starving their people were starving and so they were aligning with whichever side 
a particular tribe or or part of a tribe thought had a better chance of winning, just hoping that they were going to get through rough times. Right. And we don't have the space to really dig into it at this point, but the Cherokee Nation was heavily divided in terms yes. of, uh, of Confederate versus Union for a variety of reasons, yeah. many, of, many of which uh, dated back uh, to Tennessee and mm -hmm. uh, long, long-standing hatred of the U.S. government uh, following, following the war, uh, the, essentially the Indian Wars in, uh, in Tennessee and, and into Alabama. So that, which, which uh, Andrew Jackson was a big part of, coming yes. back to uh, the Hermitage in, uh, in that. And so the, the war, the, the Civil War, heavily divided uh, the quote unquote five civilized tribes, uh, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek and the Seminole uh, mm -hmm. predominantly. I, I do think it's interesting, the Osage is largely not in some of that conversation while they were doing a lot of their own thing over by Turkey Creek and the Spring River. Yes, well, and also, of course, they, they also had um, a large portion of Arkansas and they kept moving, basically, they kept moving them uh, in, in, in the Cherokee, sort of their lines that the government did because um, as the Cherokee were coming in, the Osage, the Osage really did not like the Cherokee at all. And right. so um, while it's sort of a, a dual irony that while you had the Trail of Tears and the relocation that caused so much trouble and rightfully so with the Cherokee and, and, and their bitterness with the government, the government at the same time kept trying to move the Cherokee to keep them from being uh, annihilated by the Osage. Yes. Because the Osage viewed them as weak. Right. So there's, there, there. So on are, one hand, the government was protecting the Cherokee, on the other hand, relocating them in, in, in horrible circumstances. So. Yeah. And it, it, it really, I think one of the things that people find or can find troubling about history mm -hmm. is that you cannot draw straight black and white lines. There, there are no nice, neat little boxes. No. And the more you dig, if you're doing your job as a historian, the more you have to accept these extreme complexities and, and almost deal with uh these issues on a case-by-case -case or a person-by-person -person basis yes and i think that's the i think that's one of the biggest lessons is that you, you can't get it's it, it's too easy to, to end up glorifying or vilifying one person or another or one side or another in whatever situation and it, it takes a a more nuanced look to understand it and and to not only understand it, but give it due credit. You have to, if, if you're going to, to stand any chance of effectively giving credit to the past. And, and, and I think honoring the past in, in all of its ugliness and all of its valor. Exactly.
And I think that um, for whatever reason, Newtonia, Missouri is one of those spots on the map that sort of sums up a lot of the, these issues um, that it's not, it, it, it's not simple, it's not black and white, and there are no easy answers. No, on so many levels, which if there were, history would be born and, yeah. and uh, places like this would not be fascinating. History is very complex. It is not boring uh, when, you, when you really dig into the, the, the realities of it, the, the, the emotions, the, 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 and quite frankly, the high emotions of the blood. Uh, it is very, very exciting, actually oftentimes cautionary, a great deal to learn. And again, I, I think you're right. A, a, an area that is often overlooked is Newtonia and the, the surrounding region. And it was crucially important during the war. It, it really was. And some of that lingers in the, in, in the, uh, in the aftermath uh, as hauntings, I think in the in the soil and the the trees and the water and the and the walls and the, mm -hmm. and the floors exactly that may be a good um spot to uh, to sum up and i and we want to remind everyone don't forget to check out upcoming events at paranormalsciencelab.com thank you again to always buying books and beard engine brewing company for helping bring the dark ozarts to everyone and on the next episode, we will discuss all of the dark lore and tales of winter from the old world and their surprising effects on the Ozarks. We thank you from the dark Ozarks. And remember, sometimes there are no easy answers. <laughs>